Welcome to the Scottish Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host Chris and here we'll be delving into the multitude of strange occurrences that happen within Scotland and beyond. You can contact us with your accounts at the Scottish Paranormal Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all social media channels and you can contact us by either means. So we'd like to welcome to the show uh, Preston Dennett. Um, we've also got Mark Anderson on a uh, coast tonight as well, as a, a local investigator for the area uh, within Scotland. Um, so, Preston, good to have you on your show. How are you tonight? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. Thanks very much. How are you, Mark? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Great to be on the show and thanks for having me as co-host. No, you're more than welcome. Come on. I mean, and thanks very much for coming on. Um, we got the link in there and I appreciate you coming on. It was quite a good time in getting you on as well and stuff. So, um, bit of time difference. I was I was worried the fact that we've got um, daylight saving times, um, as I said to you in the email. So we've got we we used to be five hours ahead or five hours ahead. Of you know, we're four hours ahead. So I was worried in case we didn't get the time right. So I've been caught up with that one before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're calling daylight savings time here. We're getting ready. <laughs> <laughs> really? Did you get anything of it yet? Yeah, they've passed laws. I think this is the last time. I'm glad because I don't like switching time twice a year. My wife was saying the same. She doesn't want to either. She's kind of sick yet. She, it, it, it ruins her sleep. And she likes her sleep because she gets up, needs to get up kind of um, either later or earlier. I don't know. I, I, I still, it confuses me. I just go with the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. I mean. You've you've got a you've got an extensive career in the, the kind of the whole paranormal field. Um, so you're a field investigator from UFON. Um, you're a paranormal investigator, ghost hunter, um, author of absolutely astronomical many books. I mean, what is it you're up to now? Is it like 27, 28 books or something? <laughs> well, it's now thirty. So is it thirty? God, that's, yeah. that's a hell of a lot of books. Um, <laughs> and obviously as well, like you've got your YouTube channel as well, and Out of Body Explorer to add into that as well. So, how do you fit all that into your time? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been doing it for many years. So, since I was really a young man, twenty-one is when I got into this field. Mm-hmm. As a skeptic, actually. Ah, but, right, okay. Uh, definitely cuts into my TV time. I can tell you that. I can imagine that, yeah, totally. So on that note, we're going to, I'd like to just get a wee bit of background to your, your origin story. So um, obviously you, we know who you are and stuff, but in regards to maybe some of your listeners, not mean they might be new to um, the paranormal field or the UFO field, and obviously maybe to some of your books and stuff like that as well. So it'd be good to get a bit of your origin story, where you started and how what, what drove you to actually get into the paranormal field and look at it, even from a skeptic's point of view? Yeah, yeah, I was very skeptical. Did not believe in UFOs, not for a second. I thought anyone who saw UFOs was lying on drugs, <laughs> misperceiving, hallucinating. I just didn't believe. And uh, I thought that my family was skeptical. Turns out most of them were, but some weren't. They were keeping secrets from me. I had no idea. And I kind of got dragged into this field involuntarily. I mean, really kicking and screaming. <laughs> I was not happy at all. And I remember the exact day, actually. It was November 17, 1986. I was 21 years old. And a report came on the evening news about a sighting over Alaska, the state of Alaska. And it was about a Japanese commercial airliner who had seen a UFO, which actually tracked their plane followed along with them, paced them for about an hour. Mm-hmm. 
and it was on their radar, their onboard radar. The whole crew saw it. There were ground witnesses. Uh, it was a great case. Yeah. Uh, on the news, they really didn't give any detail at all. <laughs> Just kind of joked about the sighting. They did mention the pilot, showed his picture, mm. and kind of moved on. But I remember looking at this pilot thinking, this poor deluded pilot, <laughs> he is crazy. He's seeing a reflection off the ice. I don't know what he thought he saw, mm. but it couldn't have been an alien spacecraft. But I thought, you know, he's throwing his career away by reporting this, which turned out to be true. Uh, like, why would he do that? Mm. Maybe he did see something. And I remember my older brother, Mark, I have three older brothers, an older sister and a younger sister. So a pretty big family. And I remember Mark had come running into the house some five years before that, saying he saw a UFO. He was very excited mm -hmm. uh, and said it was very low. And uh, he followed it. But I just kind of looked at him and shook my head and said, shut up. I, I don't believe you. Go away. UFOs aren't real. But after hearing the report on the news, I approached him again. I'm like, Mark, tell me what you saw. And he described an amazing sighting. And just in brief, he was with his two friends, Phil and Greg, driving through Southern California, where we lived mm -hmm. at night, and saw this object in the sky, it was very close to them, right at treetop level. And it was a classic saucer, a disc with little lights on it, a dome on top, totally silent. And they chased it in their car for a good 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, with other people in other cars, we're seeing it too. Yeah, amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was I'm like, what? You're, you're kidding me. I'm like, no, no, for real. This is what I saw. Go ask Phil. Go ask Greg, his friends, which I did. I, I asked them both. And uh, they said the same thing. So that's how it kind of started for me. I started asking my other family members, found out both my sister-in-laws had seen UFOs and actually had face-to-face -face encounters with ETs. Really? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge shock. I had several friends who had sightings. At the time, I worked at a business office doing data entry. Yeah. And the lady I sat next to, I knew her really well. She said, oh, yeah, me and my whole family saw UFOs. And in walks Dorothy, another office worker. And she's like, oh, yeah, one followed us home from the library. And we had missing time. And missing time, if you know this field at all, is probably an indication that you've been taken on board a craft. Mm -hmm. um, I turned to Dorothy. I'm like, Dorothy, you were abducted by aliens. Because <laughs> this time, you know, I'd started to read books yeah. on the subject. So, yeah, it hit home for me. I bought every book I could find. I joined every UFO organization. Uh, I became a field investigator for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Started attending meetings and conventions. Uh, eventually started writing articles. And before long, I found myself being asked to go on the radio. <laughs> uh, I was, I mean, I became obsessed. I was in the field for about 10 years before I put out my first book, which was about people who have been healed as a result of a UFO encounter. Mm -hmm. I found 100 cases. I've since found many more, like 300. Yeah, but yeah since that was 1996, when I put out my first book, 
kind of started putting out one book a year after that. Did, did you find that um, we writing the book in healing that after it was maybe initially hard to get the cases and then once you wrote the book, you maybe had a lot of contact after that. Did people come to you with more stories and more cases, uh, the healing aspect here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every single time I spoke on this subject, almost without exception, because, you know, I was going to bookstores and libraries and UFO groups to speak mm -hmm. on the subject mm -hmm. and on the radio and, and so forth. Pretty much every time someone would come up from the audience. I remember one lady's like, oh, they cured me of deafness. I was deaf. Mm -hmm. Another person said he had an infected tattoo <laughs> and he had mm -hmm. come down and uh, clean that up. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've heard so many different cases. One lady said she was suffering from severe vision problems. Mm -hmm. They cured that. So this is Sorry, Kristen. No, no, uh, I forgot to ask if, if there's a pattern towards healing, because I've heard that some adoptees or contactees will be healed by ET, but others won't. Is there a pattern or a, a reason behind why some people are, are being healed, but others aren't? Yeah, that was one question I really had, because after I've got 100 cases, that's a pretty big database to do a statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. And it was evenly divided between men and women. So it wasn't, you know, based on sex, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, wasn't based on geography or where you lived. Um, it wasn't age. It wasn't religion or politics or anything I could find. It wasn't blood type. It wasn't your ancestry. Uh, and what I did find were a few patterns. One is that if you have a history of encounters, uh, your chances of being healed are much more likely. And sometimes people are healed of one condition and not another, or they're not completely healed. And I've had a few people actually say that they've asked the ETs, why? Why didn't you heal me of this? And they said, it's karmic. Mm -hmm. Certain things we're not allowed to heal you of. You chose this illness or this injury mm -hmm. to learn a lesson. And that's come up in a few cases, mm -hmm. which I found interesting that, you know, ETs have a conception of karma. Mm -hmm. uh, but one pattern I did find among who is being healed was quite startling for me and was several years into my research. And that is, I was actually interviewing a lady from Norway had contacted me because she was healed of a chronic back pain yeah she had injured herself quite badly and uh had chronic back pain and she said grays gray ets came into her bedroom flopped her around like a rag doll she said it was really quite scary and very quick she was asking them questions like who are you and what are you doing and what's going on they did not communicate to to her uh, just press this instrument up against her back, a cylindrical instrument. It's one I've heard before in other similar cases. And she says they just walked out through the wall. She looked out the window. It was all lit up in bright blue light. She jumped up and looked out the window and it flicked off. And that's when she realized that she had been healed. Mm -hmm. I was asking her all these questions that I asked people. She had no history of encounters which surprised me because usually they do, as I said. Uh, so this was apparently a one-off. And I, I asked her, well, what do you do for a living? And she said, I'm an artist. I'm actually retired and please don't use my name because I'm really quite well known in my area. 
mm-hmm. as a human <clears throat> rights activist and animal rights. And when she said that, it rang a bell in my head because I had just interviewed another social worker, a gentleman by the name of Michael Carter, who had been healed of a blood clot in his leg. And he worked really hard against racism and in fact got commended by President Clinton for his work. So he's won awards for his social work. Mm-hmm. But wow, there's John Hunter Gray. He's another person who was healed. Activist. And I started looking at my cases and looking at people's profession. And the people who were being healed were doing good work for humanity in some capacity. Mm-hmm. A lot of doctors, a lot of social rights workers, environmentalists, teachers, musicians. Uh, there was a guy in England who was an inventor. He had a hole in his heart. ETs came and healed him and he asked them, why are you healing me? And they told him it's because of your work in electronics. Mm-hmm. He was an inventor. And uh, they said, what you're doing is really quite important. And we'd like you to continue your research. So I think this is one of the patterns. It doesn't turn up in every case, but it does turn up quite a bit. It's good to see the kind of benevolent factor of it when you, you, you hear quite a lot of negative effects of it. But I don't know if you and your findings uh, over the years, do you find that when people initially find out they've had experiences or they're an, they're an experiencer, that they potentially see it as negative to start off with and benevolent, but then as time goes on, they see it as more um, kind of benign and it's, it's like you say, that's that's more good than, than bad because it's maybe just a fear factor initially that's it's caused them to maybe think it's negative. Do you find yeah. that at all? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I don't blame them. I can only imagine how it must feel when you wake up and you see a gray standing next to your bed in the <laughs> middle of the night. It's dark. And they're saying, you know, come with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that is a pattern I see very much. Initially, it's quite traumatic. It's not at all unusual for, for people to have nightmares, mm-hmm. PTSD. They can't go to sleep unless the lights are on. They put double locks on their doors. Uh, it can be very scary. Yeah. But I will say that almost always when people do meet these guys, the first things the ETs will say, almost without exception, is don't be afraid. Have yeah. no fear. We won't hurt you. No harm will come to you. Mm. And then they say, come with us. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you find yourself on board this craft, presumably. And you're being laid out on a table and undressed. And this can be very, very scary for people. But I've come to realize that one of the main agendas behind this is healing. Because this is when people are being healed. And uh, they're kind of protecting people's genetics and doing what they can. It's a medical checkup is what it is. Many, many people who are taken on board a UFO will describe it in medical terms. Mm room looked like a hospital room and there was a medical bed and I was being examined and the ETs were acting like doctors. There's a really strong medical theme that runs through onboard encounters. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think what happens is, you know, when you're in fear, when you're in terror, it's not a fun experience. No. So you automatically assume this is bad for you. And Mm -hmm. also you're not that good at observing when you're scared. (laughs) you're pretty much caught up in your own head and just want it to end. 
and you know, I don't blame people. I mean, we don't even like going to doctors here on Earth. <laughs> Nobody really does. <laughs> Uh, so I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Someone doesn't have a strong fear reaction. Uh, they're not paralyzed. They don't have missing time. Mm -hmm. and the ETs will communicate with you. And as often as not, after the exam, they will take you to the control room. Say, this is how we fly our craft. Or the engine room. Say, this is how our craft run. This is how we do it. Or the observation deck, so to speak. They'll open up a window or the walls will turn transparent more often and they'll show you the earth far below or take you to see the moon or another planet. I have many cases of this mm -hmm. and this is all very positive. So yeah. Really, yeah. Sorry, I'm interrupting you again. Apologies, Preston. I was uh, watching some of your YouTube uh, documentaries and podcasts with the lady who you wrote the book Symmetry on and she was saying about how not only did they go to the moon, but to other planets in the galaxy. Are you able to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, Dolly Safran. Yeah, she's the subject of my book, Symmetry. And her case is probably the most extensive I've ever had the opportunity to research in terms of how many experiences she's had. And also, she has no fear. Uh, she got over that at age 14 and does not need hypnosis, as some people do. But she's a good example of this sort of thing. She described how she had an experience at age 14 where they took her on board and all those things happened. They examined her. They took her down to the engine room, to the control room. They actually sat her down in the seat, the pilot seat, and said, would you like to try to fly this craft? And they, she said, yes. <laughs> and they went to Jupiter. Or no, wait, I'm sorry, Saturn with the rings. And uh, when she told me that, my mind instantly jumped back to another gentleman I had interviewed by the name of Jay Gardner from West Virginia. Uh, he's an African-American gentleman, really nice guy, and said when he was about 12 years old, he had a UFO land outside his house. He heard them calling his name mentally. He went outside, dressed up only in his pajamas. <laughs> These were human-looking ETs. And they sat him down in the seat, they had a little joystick, and they let him fly the craft, and off they went to Saturn. He says he recognized it from books at school. Mm -hmm. They very much encouraged him to study, <clears throat> that it was important for him to do as good as he could in school. But yeah, these are the kinds of things people have talked about. And with Dolly, uh, I don't hear a lot of people describing going to other planets beyond our solar system. But it does turn up occasionally, and certainly it did with her. The Greys took her to what they said was their home world. And it was amazing the way she described it. There were trees that were massive, as tall as skyscrapers. The gravity was much less than Earth, high enough where she could jump some 10 feet into the air, uh, which the Greys did not like. And they're like, get back, get down. <laughs> There's, you know, you cannot run off like that there's some plants here that you know are dangerous and animals mm -hmm. and they basically took her to be taught and they taught her all kinds of subjects initially morality and ethics but definitely a lot on science astronomy and chemistry and biology uh, also magnetics uh, taught her all kinds of things 
a lot about spirituality and psychic development. So they're very, very interested in teaching people. Yeah, Dolly's case is amazing because she was able to answer a lot of the questions I had about this phenomenon that you know, other people couldn't quite remember or weren't were unsure about. Do you find that um, in the research I've done over the years, the and especially with abduction scenarios um, and experiencers, do you, do you find that they're, they're more physical or more astral or a bit of both or one or the other, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, it is a bit of both. Uh, certainly people do have contact in the dream state or the astral state and out-of-body experience. Hmm. But by and large, this is absolutely 100% <clears throat> a physical phenomenon. I say that for good reason. I'm not speculating here because these things do appear on radar. Yeah. They are being photographed, mm -hmm. leaving landing traces on the ground in the terms of crushed grass or swirled vegetation. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Indentations in the ground, burn marks. Mm -hmm. uh, people who are being taken on board are being physically healed. Uh, some, many actually report what they believe are implants, you know, mm -hmm. foreign bodies put inside perhaps their sinus cavity or their hands or many places. And I've got case after case where someone is, you know, taken by the ETs and their family goes into their room and they are not there. They are missing. Mm -hmm. This happens over happened with Dolly many times. Mm -hmm. Once she's gone for several hours. And the, her family called the police because she was just a little, you know, toddler. Yeah. Another guy, real quick, uh, his name is Tim from Louisiana. One morning, he was out in front of his house waiting to do the chores. They were, they were on a farm. And his little brother ran inside to get his gloves. They were going to bale hay and to get their dad. And Tim's just sitting on the hay bale wagon waiting. And suddenly his father and little <clears throat> come running out and saying where were you and tim's like what are you talking about i've been sitting right here the whole time and i said no you weren't you've been missing for over an hour mm -hmm. and that's when he realized his leg was bleeding he had a scoop mark on his leg two of them actually mm -hmm. and uh, later he recalled being taken on board so yeah it's a physical phenomenon yeah definitely yes you just hear so many cases as well where um, the way it's described, it could also be um, taken as sometimes part astral, where um, just the descriptions of what people are describing and, and how they've kind of passed through things and, and, and whatever um, for there. Um, and in regards to, you mentioned earlier on, um, when you were younger, you so you to get into the subject and look at the subject, you read loads of books, you probably did the same as yourself, so I mean, read loads of books and watched all the documentaries and what, what authors um, influenced yourself the most? What, what, what authors did you like the most? Out of, um, like, let's say, for example, in any parts of the paranormal, it could be like maybe the UFO field or even just paranormal as a whole. So, um... Yeah. Um, well, I remember watching on television, there was a show called In Search Of. Yeah. And this was before I was a believer. And I thought, you know, they're describing ETs that look very much like us. I don't believe this. It sounded very much like Star Trek to me. Mm -hmm. But when I found out this was real, because I knew my brother wasn't lying and my sister-in-law and my friends. 
So that's when I did pick up books. And uh, I very much like the works of Raymond Fowler. Mm. Uh, he's a great researcher, I think, and Bud Hopkins. Yeah. Uh, I love Timothy Good. Mm. Uh, Malcolm Robinson, he, he's written UFOs over Scotland, mm. one and two, and other books. I like his work as well. Yeah. Uh, so who else? John Mack. Mm -hmm. He's does good work. There are some writers out there <laughs> who I'm not a fan of. Very fear-based material. Yeah, no, I understand that. They <laughs> <laughs> ask about the about your writing career because I did a bit of a search before you before came on, and it seemed that you initially were a sci-fi writer, and there was a story about Tapania Canyon. Are you able to tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, I didn't believe in ETs, but I was a huge science fiction fan and kind of always wanted to be a writer, but found it very difficult to do. And I kind of gave it up. So later in life, I did have, you know, I started again and had some real good success with it. But I kind of gave it up because uh, I wrote an article for the local newspaper where I lived, which was Topanga Canyon, the Topanga Canyon Messenger, about some local sightings in the area. And to my shock, they put it on the front page of the newspaper. Uh, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. You know, maybe instead of writing about fictional aliens, I can write about real ones. Mm -hmm. uh, because I started writing for magazines and they would actually pay me, you know, $100 or $200. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I started really writing about UFOs. And then in June of 1992, the editor of the Topanga Messenger, Colin Penna was his name, called me up and said that there had been a wave of sightings over Topanga Canyon. Topanga is right outside of Los Angeles in Southern California, right along the coast. And he said uh, people called his newspaper office, people were calling the police, and uh, he actually got a audio tape that was leaked out from the police station of four calls that were made to the police and he played them for me. And he said, would you like to investigate to see if there's any truth to what's going on here? This was on June 14th. And uh, I interviewed a couple of people who had called the newspaper and started asking around because having grown up in that town, I knew a lot of people and I was able to locate several other witnesses to UFO activity on that one night, June 14th. And I started putting up flyers and going door to door. And I mean, I, I called the police myself, left my number with them, told them I was a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network and started getting a lot of calls from people. And it turned out there was a huge wave of sightings that went on for at least two years. And when I say a wave of sightings, I mean not only sightings, where these objects were coming down, chasing cars down the highway. Mm -hmm. In one case, it lifted a car right up off the road, hovering over a person's home, lighting up the entire interior. Uh, in some cases, landing on the ground. Some people were being taken on board. Some people were having face-to-face -face encounters. Mm -hmm. And on that one night of June 14th, I eventually located about 30 independent witnesses, all in different locations, who saw activity on that one night. Mm -hmm. Some saw one or two craft, some saw three or four. 
uh, but there were a few who saw dozens or even more. One couple who lived very high up on the ridge overlooked the whole area, said that they saw groups of craft coming up from the ocean area yeah. in groups of 10 or 20 over a period of two hours. And after like the third time, they saw them coming up <clears throat> from below. Hmm. Uh, she started counting them. And she says, I counted 200. 200. 200. <laughs> and her husband turned to her because I was interviewing them face to face, right? He's like, honey, I don't know if it was 200. I think it might have been closer to 100. You were counting them. And when he said that, I kind of burst out <laughs> the laughter. Because 100, 200, I mean, yeah, in yeah. a way, that's a lot. It's a lot, yeah, definitely. Yeah. There witnesses as well. Like, I did a case in our local area. We lived quite close to Edinburgh. And one of Malcolm Robinson's books is actually based on a local hill. Very about a mile away from where I am, and I was able to get about six witnesses, and four four of them uh, kind of stopped and didn't want to be named, and they just put up blockers and got disinterested to have thirty. That's an incredible, mm. that's an incredible case. Yeah, I, it's pretty clear to me most people don't want their names attached to this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Most people are not seeking any publicity. They're very much worried about their careers yeah ridicule factor it's gotten a lot better i will say most people now will let me use their names i always ask and uh, my first priority is of course just to counsel the witness answer any questions they may have but if they're willing to do a recorded interview i of course get very excited (laughs) yeah Uh, and it was just really gratifying in that topanga canyon wave to find so many witnesses and I ended up going That's through amazing. this UFO literature. Yeah. yeah. And I found cases I didn't even know about yeah. in books and newspaper articles, stretching back all the way to really the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And I'm still I'm honestly still finding witnesses to that one period of time in the, you know, That's the 90s. That's the thing, is you've got um it's coming a bit a bit more acceptable as you see, people are um letting their names be told and stuff like that and but it's um it's it's these the stories that people hold on to for years um within a family or or things like that or a colleague or whatever and then eventually they release them 20 years down the line 30 years down the line and and things like that and then it pieces together a lot of other things um there's so much out there um looking at um obviously you've been researching it and right through a good number of years is there any 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 time where you kind of felt like um withdrawn from it because it can be it can become consuming as you you probably know i mean it can come really really consuming it can consume your thoughts in regards to like the theories agendas and governments and everything else is there any time you've ever thought about detracting from it and coming out of it yeah yeah absolutely it can be a lot there are layers and layers to this rabbit holes uh, it just go, it's gets increasingly complex as soon as you think you have some answers another case comes along and you have to kind of throw all the theories out mm-hmm. <laughs> i do think we're dealing with extraterrestrials by the way in terms of theories but yeah it sometimes i just need to take a break mm-hmm. uh, but i always get drawn back it's so interesting yeah i think it's a very important subject uh, I know people say, oh, it doesn't affect me, but I, 
I think it does because mm. there is a cover up. And yeah. by all indications, our governments not only know this is real, but have the evidence, the hard evidence in terms yeah. of, you know, Lots the actual bolts. craft. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it. So the, the report was supposed to be out on Halloween. We're still waiting on the, the report, the UAP report. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. not going to hold my breath with the government's disclosing or telling the truth. We had that recent congressional hearing yeah. uh, here in the U.S., I thought, yay, you know, they're going to say UFOs are real. Mm -hmm. They won't call them UFOs. They're calling them UAPs, yeah. which is equally ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why we don't call them what they are, extraterrestrial craft. Mm -hmm. And they lied throughout that congressional hearing. Oh, totally. I mean, totally. Yeah. It was but, very disappointing. Although the, the congressmen and women were briefed to a certain extent, um, they could have been briefed a bit more. To, to follow up questions and and things that they did ask and it was just the uh, it, it wasn't really a lot it wasn't really answered that great and then it was interesting to see where you have the the report supposed to be coming out of Halloween and now it's people are thinking it's maybe going to drop on Friday or, or whatever even or even internally on Friday and then maybe externally after that um but it was interesting to see the report and also the the well was the report going out in the New York Times the recent article by um, Julianne Barnes, the one where it was putting a lot of it down to space clutter and stuff like that. So what in that article, I don't know if you read it or no, but it was mainly they were focusing on the space junk and the, the larger percentage uh, that, and, and no focusing on maybe like the 5 or 10% of the unexplained. And they kind of like tried to poo-poo it and that. But it was interesting to see like Susan Goff came out and actually said, because I think they actually said that the the gimbal and the the um, the tic tac video stuff could be explained, but I think Susan Goffa then actually went back and said, "No, they're they're not being explained." So he was corrected in that. So somebody's obviously been feeding them some um, disinformation before that that article came out, which I found quite interesting. It just it came out at an interesting time just before it. Um, so what kind of in regards to looking at this for that amount of time, the bounty of as you you can you can mention there where you do form some agenda some theories and about the agendas or things like that and then sometimes you fall out the window when something else happens. So what in regards to like the the alien agenda or the interdimensional agenda, what kind of theories have you came up with? What you can think could be going on in regards to it? I know it's a massive question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that is the million dollar question. You know, yeah. why are they here? Mm -hmm. Where are they from? Mm -hmm. What is their agenda with us? Uh, I do think that they are extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff gets put under the UFO umbrella that might not be technically UFOs. Yeah, I do think that there is a wide variety of paranormal phenomena going on. But if you look at the totality of the evidence in terms of photographs and landing traces and metal fragments and whistleblower accounts from within government, mm -hmm. radar return cases, medical evidence, it's clear <clears throat> to me that the extraterrestrial explanation is by far the one that best explains the evidence. Mm -hmm. So I do think that's what we're dealing with. I don't think they're demonic. <laughs> I don't think that it's an interdimensional intelligence that wears different masks. Mm -hmm. Some researchers have put forth. Mm. Uh, I don't think they're time travelers from the future, or us, you know, from the future, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. 
not to say that there aren't some things you know that could be interdimensional in terms of beings yeah uh, but as far as agenda i think we've got a really good handle on it as researchers mm -hmm. certainly what I, i've found out is pretty much what other researchers are saying people like john mack or Barbara Lamb, or Edith Fiore, or I mean, all of them are coming up with pretty much the same scenarios. And what we are seeing is definitely an interest in genetics. Mm -hmm. They do seem to track families through generations. They are removing genetic material from humans mm -hmm. and animals and plants. They're collecting all life forms uh, on our planet. And I think part of that is to create, and I cringe when I think of skeptics hearing this, uh, half alien, half human babies. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was getting reports like that from the very beginning. I still get them. That is one of the gray agendas. Mm -hmm. uh, and people have asked, why? What are you doing? And basically, the grays are telling people that they are replenishing their own genetic stock that they have the same genes we do, mm -hmm. that all species are essentially human in terms of genetics, but they've lost the ability to reproduce uh, to the degree that you know they would like. And they are repairing their genetics, which have been damaged due to space travel and gamma radiation and genetic intervention. So that is absolutely an agenda. Mm -hmm. Another that's very prominent is when people are taken on board and they are not so scared that they can't communicate, uh, they do get messages. And these messages almost always fall into a couple of categories. Those are usually warnings of some kind, warnings against nuclear proliferation. I would say that's the most common, but they warn people about environmental destruction, the chopping down of forests, the polluting of air. They're very concerned about greed and corruption in our warlike ways. So these are the things they're warning people about, our use of energy and fossil fuels. This is why they often take people down to the, their engine room and say, look, here's how we do it. There are other sources of energy. You do not need to burn oil. You're polluting your air. You're facing an existential crisis if you continue down the path you're going down. This is a major agenda. They're trying to wake us up to how we are treating ourselves, each other, and the planet. So that is very prominent. Another one I would say that's very prominent is trying to wake people up to their own psychic abilities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hear this all the time. ETs will say something like, this is our gift to you for working with us. And they will give people psychic abilities, such as the ability to give psychic readings or do astral travel or past life recall or healing. Healing is very prominent. Hands-on healing, Reiki, this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but it goes right down the line. Uh, people who are contactees, as a general rule, are profoundly psychic, often as a result of their experiences. Yeah. They'll become mediums and see ghosts. They're experiencing a very wide variety of paranormal phenomena, which is why I ended up, you know, researching ghosts and autobody experiences and human levitation. And I mean, you name it, this has come up.
So that's absolutely an agenda. But they have lots of agendas. I think some are here as tourists. Some are here as scientists. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things going on. But those, I'd say, would be the main three agendas. Healing, warning people, and trying to wake people up. When you, you when say different... Sorry, Mark, when you go. I was just uh, going to ask about the, the different types of, of beings. The, That's exactly what I was going to ask as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll let, you, I'll let you speak, Chris. No, no, you go. I was going to ask the same. So you okay. need to go. So. Yeah. Uh, it was just basically, as everybody knows, uh, nobody agrees. Uh, in Dorothy's case, you're also talking about another species called the tall whites. And in places like Norway, we're talking about with the uh, artists. There's the, the Nordics, for example, that seem to be regularly contacted. What sort of what sort of experiences have you generally dealt with? Has it been generally uh, one species or have you had a number of species that you've uh, that seem to come up over and over again? Do you see the agendas changing between the different types of uh, species? Uh, there are many different types. Um, it's kind of a trick question because, again, the human form or humanoid form seems to be the template it's mm -hmm. almost universal i kind of expected there to be ets with tentacles and you know or like the blob or something completely different we couldn't even imagine but that's just not what we're seeing this is not what people are reporting they are reporting almost exclusively humanoids with a head two arms two legs you know eyes mouth and so forth but this is where we get a lot of variation and to some extent, I think the term alien is not accurate uh, because we have human looking figures, ones that look just like us, identical. Most of the cases I get, I will say over 50%, I would say are grays. And by that, I mean, you know, three foot to five feet tall, six feet in some cases, but I think that type is very well known with the large heads, no hair, huge dark eyes, very small nose and mouth, almost no ears, wearing jumpsuits, speak, speaking telepathically. Uh, that is one. Yeah. Sorry, I've interrupted again. Sorry, there must be a time uh, delay. Um, the one that I've never heard about before until I was just searching, uh, searching yourself was a cat, a bald cat type species. That's a, that's a first for me. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten a few. I remember the first time I got it, I kind of scratched my head. This was a lady from the Midwest, and uh, she swore up and down that this is what she saw, a humanoid cat. I'm like, really? With fur? She's like, yes. <laughs> it had fur. It had little ears. It was dark fur, and she had numerous meetings with it. And so I interviewed her, and I kind of thought, hmm, I don't know. But I started running to other cases, and there are some in the literature, not a lot. Dolly Safran, the lady I recently interviewed in my latest book, said that she absolutely had an encounter with them and not only cat-like beings but dog-like beings uh, you do see these things in egyptian mythology by the way little statuettes of dog-like you know, anubis and things like that yeah, and ra yeah. and so forth mm -hmm. uh, and there are people yeah there's a wide wide variety of humanoids so we see grays uh, and many different types of grays i mean little short ones tall ones uh, generally very thin, but a, a wide sort of variation in terms of skin color and 
head size and, and some describe little round eyes even. Mm -hmm. But yeah, mostly grays, I would say 50 to 60, even up to 70% in my files. Mm -hmm. And after that would be human looking, uh, often called Nordic or Pleiadian. But, you know, I had a gentleman in Idaho, so I don't want to call them Nordic because the person he saw had very dark skin. He said he looked Middle Eastern to him. He's wearing blue or silver jumpsuit and blue boots and had dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin, very handsome. And I talked to another guy who had an encounter here in California. And he said the human looking figures he saw, there were several of them, were about five feet tall, had short brown hair and looked Mesoamerican, you know, Peruvian perhaps, but all looked almost identical like brothers and sisters. That does turn up. They all often look like twins even. Mm -hmm. So human looking definitely is a very common category. Another one is praying mantis, which I find fascinating because yeah. we have the praying mantis insect here. Mm -hmm. But how many insects do we have? I mean, there's got to be thousands upon thousands of insect species. Mm -hmm. And the praying mantis is very prominent. They're usually described as about six to nine feet tall mm. very slender triangular head enormous eyes the size of you know a basketball in some cases uh very stick-like limbs and i've got a few cases from really good witnesses actually one's a navy medic the other's a school teacher mm -hmm. describing praying mantis figures upwards of 15 feet tall mm -hmm. so that's another type but really strange humanoids of all kinds. You have tall whites, which do have hair and human-like features, but are clearly not human. One lady, she contacted me. She lives in Nebraska. She really wanted to know if I had ever had a report of the type of being she saw. She described a man or a male figure with a huge jutting chin, an enormous tall forehead, uh, orange straw-like, hair she said it really wasn't hair at all it stuck straight up about mm -hmm. three inches and he had very large eyes i had another gentleman from canada describe uh nine to ten foot tall beings with very thick wrinkly skin enormous dark eyes with gold-lined irises wearing black shiny jumpsuits with high collars and a cape uh, so these are unique beings that I've never heard before or since, or mm. even described in the literature. Mm -hmm. so I have a wide, wide variety of humanoids, short little furry guys, hairy guys, light beings, tall whites, short little blue beings. I do hear periodically. Willie Strieber, the famous contactee, yeah. York described those and they appeared in his movie, Communion. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, that's exactly, that's the ones my sister-in-law saw. She actually is an artist. And she drew them. And it, so when anyone ever describes, oh, I think I saw these, you know, short little blue beings. I'm like, what do they look like? And they go through the whole description. Um, I'm like, can I show you this drawing I have from a witness? And I show it to them. They're like, oh, that's exactly what I saw. That's very close. <laughs> had people start crying or weeping when they see these pictures yeah because they, they kind of think oh they'd rather be crazy sometimes uh, it's a real shock for them to get confirmation from another source mm -hmm. 
And just to cap it off, yeah, I think the term alien is a bit misleading. Mm -hmm. Contactees get a message from these guys saying, basically, you are us. We are you. We are one. We all share a common heritage. Mm -hmm. That's what we're seeing. There is sort of a template, a humanoid template. But in effect, we all share the same genetics. And for that matter, there's a number of contactees who have been told that the greys themselves are essentially human and did look like us at one point uh, but had genetic damage mm. so yeah lots of humanoids out there and we ourselves are probably extraterrestrial given that there's human looking beings out there yeah <laughs> I don't know, that raises some serious questions about our relationship to them and you know did we even originate on this planet we mentioned before about um, some experiences within your family, um, like your brother, for example, and then the other um, other members of the family. Do you ever have any experiences your, yourself? Yes, <laughs> I did. When I first found out this was real, the first thing I did was kind of scour my own past, looking for any clue, because I didn't have any UFO sightings. Mm -hmm. There was an incident when I was a kid about... 10 12 years old or i think i may have had missing time because uh, i did you know they everyone had lunch without me and i'm like where was i <laughs> they're like i don't know I'm like, how could you eat lunch without me you know, how did i miss this i was really upset because you know we have six kids in our family and you don't miss a meal because <laughs> uh, uh you know you're hungry and <laughs> we weren't exactly rich you know <laughs> uh so but that's really the only thing i can point to as a child but once I found out this was real, my brother had seen one and my sister-in-laws. <clears throat> By the way, I've had nep two nephews who've had encounters. One had an encounter with humanoids. It's definitely in my family. Mm -hmm. uh, I really wanted to see one myself. So whenever anyone I'd interviewed said, they'd, oh, I just saw one last night. But can I come over? Do you mind if I sleep out in your backyard? <laughs> I actually did this. I, you know, I was really, really wanted to see one. Yeah. It's one thing to read about these in books. You know, it's like, wow, that's amazing. It's even better to hear someone that you love and trust describe an encounter or interview someone face to face. You're that close to actually seeing it. But it wasn't until I actually started seeing it myself that I knew from personal experience, I had own personal knowledge that this was real. Mm -hmm. And initially it was just kind of anomalous lights. I'm like, eh, I don't know, that could be a anything a shooting star or a satellite I, I it's pretty clear it wasn't in some cases i mean i saw a really bright light and just disappeared mm -hmm. but it wasn't enough and it wasn't until 1992 late july uh, that i had gone to my brother mark's house and christy uh, his wife and stayed up late talking about ufos <laughs> and said you know i've got to go home it's getting late i've got to work tomorrow and uh, left their house. This is in Woodland Hills in Southern California. It's a very densely populated suburb. I just left their house. I was about two minutes away from their house, coming around this very tight hairpin corner at about three miles an hour or less. It's a very tight corner. Mm -hmm. And looking up, I saw something coming down towards my car. And my first thought was it was a bird but looking up, it was about 200 feet to the right. 
I saw it wasn't a bird. It was a ball of light, small. And I thought, well, maybe it's a firecracker because it's after the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone's shooting firecrackers, but there was no noise. And it wasn't a firecracker. This thing came down, dropped down and stopped right in front of my windshield. And it was a small ball of light about the size of a golf ball, maybe a little bigger mm-hmm. with yellow and white, pretty bright, but had solid edges. And I swear this thing was looking at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was about a foot away. And your first thought is, you know, is this a reflection? Uh, even though it clearly wasn't. So I'm kind of looking at it and it moves back and forth in front of my windshield two, three times, stops again. It's over the hood of my car. I mean, this is close. And I'm holding my steering wheel like, oh, my God, (laughs) what is this thing? And then it kind of moved forward. It dipped down and went straight up. And it was gone. I remember just kind of looking up through the windshield as as it darted away. And I completely forgot about it. The whole experience left my mind. It's amazing, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed people who, you know, yeah, UFO landed next to me on the road, but we didn't talk about it. In fact, we forgot about it. All four of us. I'm like, what? <laughs> How can you forget the most amazing event of your life? They're like, I don't know. I don't know. I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. I, I know somebody uh, who's very close to me, and uh, they, they went out with somebody, the person, other person saw it, uh, still spoke about it to me about 15 years later. And when I asked uh, the other person, she went, I can't remember seeing one. So, yeah, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. One question I was having, you were talking about UFOs with your with your family. Do you believe there is a connection now? What The way I'm going with this question is almost like with C5, there's a meditation that people do to kind of uh, draw in, uh, draw in uh, phenomena like strange lights or UFOs. Do you think by speaking about them and thinking about them, almost acts like the same sort of thought process of what meditation would do and that's what maybe attracted that ball of light to you or is there, do you think there's just random what was your what's your thoughts no i think you're right the the former uh because I, I started having a lot more sightings 1992 was a big year for me i had a, a series of them and it was quite startling and i even had a few where they gave me telepathic messages and it was alarming to me because I'm like, what have I, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> Am I becoming a contactee myself? Uh, and I started looking at other researchers and I was shocked to see how many of them were having encounters. And many of them started having encounters after they started researching it. So I think there's absolutely something to that. If you start researching them, the tables will turn and they will start researching you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that happened to Ed Conroy, a mainstream journalist who wanted to investigate the case of Whitley Strieber and see mm-hmm. if it was hoaxing. And he concluded that Whitley was telling the truth uh, because he had so many witnesses around him. But Ed Conroy later actually started having his own experiences. I mean, full on missing time and apparently, you know, being taken on board and so forth. Mm-hmm. So (laughs) I think there is absolutely something to that. And I still have occasions of that where I'll be drawn outside. Uh, I think it was just last year or could have been the year before, actually, now that I think about 2021, 
it was November 2020. I went outside because I hadn't had a sighting in a while. You know, I'll have one every couple of years or so hmm. after I publish a book. Maybe a little light will appear. I'll get a little, almost a, like a high kind of message. Hmm. Good job. <laughs> I know how that must sound, but that's kind of, you know, you get impressions from these things. You get messages occasionally. Yeah, yeah. But I went outside yes. and I'm looking up. I'm like, are you out there? You know, show yourselves. <laughs> This this little earthworm wants to see one. <laughs> so, this light flashed really big and bright right where I was looking and winked out. Mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa, okay, maybe they are listening. Uh, I think they are because I did have a guy call me from England once. And he says, are you Preston Dennett? <laughs> and I said, yes. He says, well, I've had an encounter and I really need to ask you some questions. The greys came down and told me all these quite frightening things. And I'm like, what did they tell you? He says, well, they warned me about nuclear proliferation and that we're in danger of destroying our planet and all these things, the same messages I hear. He's like, have you ever heard this before? I said, well, yeah, I sure have. This is a very common thing. And so I basically counseled him for a while and we got ready to hang up. He's like, I have one more thing I wanna tell you. <laughs> My encounter occurred this morning, it was, was with Gray's but they told me that I need to contact you. They said, there's a gentleman by the name of Preston Dennett. We would like you to call him. <laughs> and when he told me that, I almost did a backflip because that's exactly what Dolly Saffron told me. And I had another witness from Australia tell me that as well. Uh, so that's one thing that I find really interesting. And sorry, I'm interrupting you. Please forgive me. I, I don't mean to do it. Uh, I find it really interesting about the counseling part because it's not something that a lot of the UFO community talk about, but uh, there are elements, not just within the UFO, but also the paranormal community, where there is there's trauma, there's upset, there's, there's grief, and there's, there needs to be healing. And I've never heard anybody speak about the, about counselling. I find, I find that really interesting. I know it's maybe not a, a mainstream topic, but what's your thoughts on that? And how have you, how have you found that uh, helping... Uh, people. Yeah, I, I think that's my primary goal because for me, finding out UFOs were real was very upsetting. Uh, I I had been lied to. My my own family was keeping secrets from me. Mm -hmm. The government was keeping secrets from me. This wasn't being taught in schools. Finding out that UFOs were real, you know, sounds like good news. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. And yeah, it was. But it was also very upsetting. I felt scandalized. I was not a happy camper. I had to readjust my whole worldview. And I'm still kind of doing that. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons I do this research is you know just for my own well-being. Mm -hmm. I want to know. But I can only imagine how it must feel for people who especially are skeptical and have this happen to them. Yeah. And I've had people call me weeping absolutely you know crying saying i've not i have to talk to somebody you know i haven't told anybody in my family i've got no history of mental illness i've got a good job i don't do drugs you know can you please tell me that i'm not crazy because uh, this is often what people will think that they're you know schizophrenic or something uh, and i've had people put into mental institutions they've told me this i, I haven't done it <laughs> let me let me rephrase that um 
people have told me that they have been put into mental institutions by their yeah. family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's very, very important that people have somebody to talk to, that they have a, a resource mm-hmm. or a resource, someone to go to. And that has always been my primary goal. One gentleman, he called me and we were doing these interviews. He had seen a reptilian humanoid. I have very few, I forgot to mention those guys, the reptilians. Yeah. Uh, I get very few of those, but he had had an encounter and uh, I asked him to describe it. And he, he began weeping. And this is a military guy, a Marine, you know, a tough guy. Uh, and he started, you know, he's a full grown man and he's crying. I'm like, I'm very sorry. You know, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, no, I really, really want to. Uh, and he pulled himself together and says, I just honestly can't tell you very well, you know, in much detail what this guy looked like because I was too scared to look at them. He said it was too frightening. I can tell you he had snake-like eyes with vertical slits in his pupils and very much uh, scales on his skin <clears throat> and that he was about seven feet tall and twice the width in terms of broad shoulders of a human being. So a very, very large uh, figure. But yeah, some people aren't able to tell me what they saw because I had a case with four witnesses. One guy, Gabe Eldort, he's like, oh man, it was so cool. <laughs> Came right over our house, it shone down a beam of light. I wanted to jump into that beam. And I interviewed two brothers. And one of the brothers says, you know, I'm really wasn't giving me any details i'm like well could you try to describe what you saw and he says honestly i can't because when that thing dropped down over the house and shined that beam of light down i became really frightened and i hid i hid behind the house mm-hmm. i don't know what it looked like i did not want to look at it so yeah people definitely need counseling people are having ptsd mm-hmm. we're, we're trained to fear anything that's different anything that you know looks anything not like us the Mm -hmm. media is very Uh, fear-based and it's important that people realize these guys are not here to hurt us they've been around for thousands of years that's not their agenda i have zero cases of people being taken on board and tortured or sadistic behavior et's never land come out and beat somebody up (laughs) not not like we humans do it to each other i think initially um as i say there later on we are Maybe people start to remember an experience and it, it comes back. And maybe initially they'll have a terrifying encounter or they'll have the fear factor then, but then it goes on and they, they, they see it's it's no negative as, as time goes on. It's maybe just been the fear is there. And even when you get people who um, have not had experiences and you're talking about the belief in the subject or the phenomena overall. And um, there are a lot of, as you know, there are a lot of different camps here. You have your skeptics there. You have your your um, people who do believe and people who know. And you also have the people who maybe believe but don't want to know. And it's, it's down to just sheer fear factor, I mean, which you can understand. Like, like, like my wife's in that camp. She just doesn't want to know. <laughs> I mean, she's like she'd rather not know what's out there. Um, but it's not to say she doesn't believe stuff. Um, but I, it's, it's totally interesting in, in, in that thing. So when when yourself, I mean, obviously we the 
research I've done over the years, and you have a lot of validation through like witness testimony and, and, and things like that. When and even obviously you've read all you know, books in the past and documentaries and, and you've heard the actual reports from the actual people um and seen the emotion that's involved in it and you've had the validation yourself in regards to sightings and stuff. When in 2017, when obviously the the, the US government came out with the, the Tic Tac Nemitz event and 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 then had the congressional hearings, did you feel any more validation by that? Or um how did what did that make you feel after that? I mean, was it was it an extra bit of validation coming for that, or was it just well, they're just them letting it out now, or, or what was your kind of feelings on that aspect? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had mixed feelings, honestly. Um, on some level, I thought it was too little, too late. Like, <laughs> thanks so much, but where were you for the past eighty years? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you were lying about this, mm-hmm. we we've known that the governments know that this is real. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is demonstrable. Yeah documents released through the freedom of information act that prove every intelligence agency in the u.s and this is true for other countries yeah are absolutely very interested in the subject and devoting an enormous amount of time money and effort to studying it mm-hmm. all at the same time saying if you think you saw a ufo you're an idiot you're a liar you are on drugs yeah hoaxes hallucinations and misperceptions that was what they told people who thought they saw ufos Project yeah. Blue Book concluded this, and they said there's absolutely nothing to this. The Condon Committee, the Robertson panel. So now, you know, all these decades go by, and they come out and say, "Oh, guess what? <laughs> you were right. We were wrong." Uh, yeah, it, that was both, you know, encouraging and infuriating. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really happy that they did come forward, but I don't feel like they did it voluntarily. I feel like their hand has been forced. Yeah, so some way. Yeah. So much evidence is out there now. So many people know our government is lying that if they did not disclose, they didn't take steps towards disclosure, they would lose complete all credibility. Mm-hmm. They would lose all credibility. They would lose, you know, relevance. They would lose complete control of the narrative. Yeah. That's the last thing they want. But I don't think they're doing it for the good of the people. That's not their style. Yeah. Uh, so it's really disappointing that they they did use the word extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. Looked like it really hurt them to say it <laughs> once. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, oh, we could. It could be balloons. We have one that's a balloon." Mm-hmm. You know, they had collected 144 cases initially. Yeah. And that- they're like, "Well, oh, could be China. Could be Russia. You know, could even be us." Mm-hmm. When they said that, I'm like, "Well, wait a second. <laughs> You are the U.S. government. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. Where does that leave us? So incredibly disappointing, but I am very much encouraged for a couple of reasons, because now it's a 180 degree turnaround. They said there is such things as UFOs. Yeah. And also, this has brought a lot of attention to this subject. Mm-hmm. You know, thousands, if not millions of people are now taking a second look at this and it's now being discussed seriously without ridicule and laughter and disbelief and skepticism in you know congress we have senators and representatives and people from all levels of government but quite high up mm-hmm. you know talking very seriously about this 
and lots of people now are like, wow, did you hear the government is talking about UFOs? But until they show us the craft, until they show us the bodies, yeah. until they have complete truth and transparency, uh, I, the disclosure movement has not completed. That, I mean, that's the end game for me. Yeah, I want com complete truth and transparency. I, I do think now is when it's out to a certain extent for what they've done so far, and it needs to go a step further than that. There's no way they're going to get the toothpaste back in the tube now. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. But going back to even things where in the past where you had um, UFOs or orbs or, or whatever else, buzzing nuclear sites or buzzing um, military bases, about that, and then they're turning and say, in the UK this has happened as well in regards to no defence significance and it's, it's not a thing they've looked at. You try and fly a drone next to a nuclear facility, I mean, you'll know about get shot down straight away, or you know they'll be they'll be looking for you. So I mean, for that, it's it's just um, some of the some of the actual excuses they used to come out of it. It's, it's comical and it's actually belittling to think actually to think people are that stupid. What I did find quite amusing recently as well, where like now NASA try to jump on the bandwagon as well and saying we're going to look into UFOs. Like they've been the perfect position for. Um, the same as the US government in a better position to probably actually um, come out with evidence or come out with um, a lot of information but they've known the past and now they're just obviously the NASA they, they, they can't be seen to be on the back foot now so they need to be well we're looking at this as well <laughs> like, God, yeah. in a perfect position to actually um, I th it's interesting to see though how much they're going to go back the way I mean obviously they're looking at quite a lot of recent cases and they're looking at um i know like the, the 144 cases were, were quite recent cases they're not going they're not historical cases but then um we've still got that to look at i mean you're still going to look at actually the historical cases and then obviously this the the program that's been running um behind the scenes um when you oversight and stuff like that so all that stuff if that ever can um comes out I mean, it'll be quite interesting to see what comes through there um, in that as well. Um, so within within the, going back to the experiencer aspect, it, because I do find that, and you'll probably, um, I, I'd probably expect you would find with the books that I've seen you've written, you've got, you've got a number of books and, and a series of books on, obviously, um, like Not From Here, I mean, the series of that, and also the other ones, uh, undersea UFO loads of books in UFOs. I mean a lot of a lot of it's quite experiencer based as well, quite a lot of accounts and stuff. So within that, do you do you you obviously hear the the stories where, as you mentioned um in a discussion where maybe nuclear issues in the future or destroying the planet and climatic change and, and things like that. Um but there's also talk you hear within the, the experience I feel that um, some type of event is going to happen in the future or some type of ascension or some type of awakening or maybe a, potentially maybe a negative event where people need to awaken or something's going to happen. Have you came across anything like that within your, within your um, accounts and research? Um, to some extent, uh, not in any really definable way. Uh, I think what I do here in terms of future events is ETs are warning people again that we are facing a possible existential crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, perhaps 
great periods of social unrest or collapse of society or you know massive natural disasters so we do hear accounts of people being told that there's a possibility of you know uh mm -hmm. solar flares uh cmes coronal mass ejections mm -hmm. uh, magnetic tilts uh shifts and tidal waves and earthquakes uh, one gentleman who was a navy medic I mentioned briefly that some, you know, he had seen 15 foot tall praying mantis beings. They mm. gave all these kinds of warnings uh, of earthquakes and hurricanes and another lady up in Maine. So yeah, that does turn up. Uh, mm. Not so much moving into the fifth dimension, which I've tried to pin down and I have not had anyone you know, tell me that there's going to be a huge you know, event in terms of an actual mm structural change to our universe. Uh, but another thing that does come up, certainly, Dolly Saffron talks about this. I've had many contactees tell me that there's a distinct possibility that if things go very bad for us, that ETs might come down in very large numbers and do an open official contact and perhaps even scoop people up mm -hmm. and essentially rescue them. So that does turn up in a number of cases, which I think is really quite exciting and encouraging. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think we're going to have open official contact unless we can really come together as a species and mm -hmm. stop killing each other, <clears throat> stop polluting our planet and stop all this divisiveness and hatred and greed and corruption. That I think is one of the main obstacles that's stopping open official contact, our inability to elect world leaders that have our own best interests in mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the future is very interesting with this subject. Mm -hmm. It's like you said, the toothpaste is out of the tube. Mm -hmm. uh, we know this is real. I don't think the UFOs are going to just suddenly leave. Yeah. Uh, this is a real phenomenon. We know this. We're not alone. They've been around forever. Uh, open official contact and disclosure will happen. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm, definitely. So we'll see how this all rolls out. I'm very encouraged. I'm optimistic by nature. So I think we can get through this. Mm -hmm. And no matter what happens, we're a very resilient species uh, and we'll survive one way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm very interested to see what the future brings. And I'm hoping that, you know, all this stuff happens within my lifetime. Yeah, I want to see it. Yeah, I would love to go on board a UFO mm -hmm. and remember it. <laughs> remember it, unless you've already been there and you've not remembered it yet. So <laughs> there's always that aspect there. Um, move, moving just away from the UFO field, although it does mix up in this field, um, as you'll probably you probably know, um, one of your books, um, Bigfoot and Bigfoot Yeti and other ape men, um, and your research into that. I mean. Personally, I mean, personally, I never looked at the, crypt, the cryptic, uh, crypt, the word, cryptid aspect, uh, the paranormal. There's quite a lot, of, as you know, there's quite a lot of aspects of paranormal. Um, and it's just going to thrown into one big ball and then you've got like all different parts here. But um, it was one part I never really researched into in, until um, a number of years ago. And it's astonishing what you find. And you probably found yourself. So, could you comment on on that book and kind of what you found and stuff? And 
things like that as well. Yeah, yeah, Bigfoot, you know, Sasquatch. That was a subject I really avoided for a while. I was afraid it would suck me in. Yeah. I was afraid there might be validity to it, that Bigfoot was real. And I just didn't want to go there. I felt like it was opening up a can of worms. Mm-hmm. But as you know, if you're a good scientist, you have to face the evidence wherever it takes you. Yeah. And the time came when I got a Bigfoot case. And in fact, it was related to a UFO encounter. Mm-hmm. That's why. That's why I said that because it does make sense sometimes with the stories. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he had had a UFO land in his backyard. This is in Canyon Country in Southern California. Mm-hmm. The very next night, had a Bigfoot encounter in the same exact area, which he felt was related somehow, though he couldn't say how. Uh, but following that, he had a poltergeist outbreak in his home. Mm-hmm. So kind of all three phenomena intersected perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, doing having read a lot on the subject, I knew of cases like that, but that was my first one personally. But it wouldn't be my last. Mm-hmm. I started to get other cases of Bigfoot that were not related to UFOs, mm-hmm. uh, and some that were. But at some point, I'm like, mm, I guess I have to look into this. I started buying all the books on Bigfoot, <laughs> checking out the databases because there's a lot of research that's been done on this. Yeah, and hundred percent Bigfoot is real. Therefore, yeah, yeah. If you don't think it's real, you. I don't mean to be rude, but you haven't done your homework. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a, I, I hadn't done my homework until, like, as I say, the number of years ago, and um, and it's unbelievable what's out there. And uh, I, I was I was really really skeptical uh, skeptical to start off with, and until you read the reports, listen to the witnesses, and the evidence is there, and it's um, it, it's there, it's happening. But the 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 thing is, way as well, it's as you know, there's a number of different camps in the. In the Bigfoot field as well, where people think it's a flesh and blood, blood creature, and other people would think it's um, a kind of paranormal type thing as well, because it's always um, there's there's a lot of cases as you know there'll be it's seen with orbs and stuff like that, so the orbs in the forest and almost like as if it, the orbs going to turn into the Bigfoots and things like that, or there's other cases where it's it's totally separated in that that sense as well, or there's always kind of orb activity around about where you see Bigfoots, and uh, but. There's, there's so many cases and it's, uh, they've been there for, as you know, I mean, for for so long, dating back so far. I mean, it's, it's really, really fascinating and interesting. I mean, so... Um, yeah, I wonder about the whole paranormal thing because I've had... I did interview one witness who said that he saw the Bigfoot actually turn invisible. Mm-hmm. Invisible. And mm-hmm. uh, I've had a number of those cases. It makes me wonder, you know, are these interdimensional beings or do yeah. they have this ability? And I think if you think about it, all beings, humans included, ETs, do have interdimensional aspects to them. Yeah. We go somewhere when we die. We have a, a dream body or an astral body, a soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, really advanced yogis or what have you, m- monks or medicine men, sorcerers, <laughs> uh, have all kinds of supernatural abilities. Mm-hmm. People talk about teleporting and turning invisible and levitating. Yep. Clairvoyance. And so we have these same abilities. I don't think it's useful to call ETs interdimensional or Bigfoot any more than, you know, we as humans yeah. are also interdimensional. All life forms are interdimensional. 
you look at mathematics and quantum physics, we've proven that there are other dimensions. Yeah. And I think if you look into the actual case histories of the paranormal, you'll see that, yes, we have these abilities. So it should come as no surprise that, you know, Bigfoot does as well. And I think Bigfoot probably is intelligent, is sentient, and is probably more advanced than many humans in mm -hmm. regards of being able to access these interdimensional or parent, what we call paranormal abilities, yeah. which really aren't. No. There is no such thing as supernatural or paranormal. Mm -hmm. What we're describing when we use those words is we don't understand it. It's we don't know unknown here it is, yeah. <laughs> we don't know the mechanics behind it. We can't explain <laughs> it. Yeah. It's like the, the old kind of cliche looking back when uh, back in the olden days it would perceive some piece of technology as being magic. <laughs> I mean so <laughs> things like that. Um before I move on, Mark, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I was wondering I'm actually really interested in the paranormal and I'm really interested in the inter section between the paranormal and UFOs. I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, I won't go into, I've had personal experiences uh, myself, but I'd really love to hear your your views on, on that, Preston, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. That's what I'm really honestly still trying to figure out. It's quite complicated. Um, I did have one case of a ghostly haunting, which might even be best described as a demonic haunting for that matter in which two girls were living in a haunted apartment and were having terrible experiences with you know, apparitions and knocking noises and cold spots and weird smells and right down the line, all the paranormal phenomena you associate with poltergeists, mm -hmm. even to the point where they have these dark apparitions attack them, move inside them and paralyze them and almost possess them. Jeez. When that happened, they moved out. <laughs> They're like, that's it. I'm moving out. And, you know, I interviewed both of them. I interviewed their friends who come over and have experiences. I interviewed their neighbor. She's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, I'd like to talk to the apartment manager. And she's like, I'm so glad you called. You know, this is a real problem in this building. So this was pretty well verified. Yeah. They move out and the haunting pretty much stopped. It kind of tapered off very quickly. But it was about two weeks, a week after they had moved out of this haunted apartment that suddenly they heard this very loud buzzing noise, filled the whole apartment. They thought, oh no, something's back again, because it would always manifest in weird, different ways. Yeah. And they ran out into their balcony, and there was a huge U-shaped craft, sort of V-shaped, with little lights all over it. It was a UFO right over their apartment building. They felt it was looking at them. They felt 100% this was connected to their recent paranormal activity. Mm -hmm. And that was my first case. I thought, hmm, what is going on here? Because I started to get more cases like that, like that gentleman in Canyon Country who had a poltergeist outbreak. Yeah. So there yeah. is a connection. And what There's... I sorry. Yeah, I, what I found is contactees in general do experience a wide variety of paranormal events. Mm -hmm. So I think what's happening here is when someone is having contact. Uh, it wakes them up psychically and they suddenly find themselves overwhelmed, you know, neck deep in paranormal phenomena. So mm -hmm. you're taken on board a UFO and you're put back and your bioelectric field is magnified and you're affecting electromagnetic equipment and you're drawing ghosts to you. Uh, I think yes. ghosts, 
see you know people who have mediumistic abilities and are drawn to them so suddenly contactees are reporting seeing shadow people and they'll have dreams which come true this happens quite often uh, and so i think it kind of goes both ways too i think if you are suddenly have a psychic awakening and you're having a lot of paranormal activity this can draw the ufo to you as well so i think it goes both ways and that's my main theory right now <laughs> There is a connection, but it's the person. It's not the objects themselves. It's not a phenomenon that wears different masks. I think when someone has a near-death experience, that's exactly what's happening. Or an out-of-body experience, or a Bigfoot, or a ghost sighting, or what have you. Mm -hmm. I think it's a mistake to put this all under one umbrella and say, this is the same thing, because it's not. Um, I, I don't see any indication that these are exactly the same thing at all, because mm -hmm. many people will have a Bigfoot sighting and there's no UFO. Mm -hmm. you know, there are mediums who have never had a UFO encounter, but there's yeah. absolutely a connection here. Uh, and I think it's a mistake to ignore these accounts. A lot of researchers are nuts and bolts researchers. I know for a fact that some major researchers have thrown away evidence like this and that's not going to solve any mysteries if you don't look at all the evidence yeah so i don't know exactly what's going on here but that's my theory <laughs> that's the thing you get, you get sorry mark you go no just to, to say that one one theory that is i don't know if it's in in the us but in the uk like stonehenge there's many uh, hundreds if not thousands of smaller stone circles or standing stones and Wherever you are, there's, you can always, you're only a few miles away from them. And there's a, a theory by some of something called ley lines, which are basically energy lines that intersect throughout, uh, throughout the country. And some believe that there's an increased activity of UFOs, paranormal, all types of paranormal uh, activity around these ley lines. And that, that's certainly something that I find interesting, but I don't know if you've ever run across any theories like that. There's maybe, maybe uh, earth energy or some sort of energy within the, the ground themselves that uh, may have may increase the likelihood of people seeing things at these specific spots. Yeah, yeah I absolutely have run across that. And mm -hmm. it's very interesting because, you know, Topanga Canyon, where that big wave of sighting was, um, has had some religious miracles, a lot of ghost activity, some cryptozoology creatures. Mm -hmm. All in this one area. And I started looking at other areas because there's a series of books by a researcher by the name of Christopher O'Brien, who wrote The Mysterious Valley and Beyond the Valley. The San Luis Valley in Colorado also has all these features, an enormous number of UFO sightings, all kinds of weird cryptozoological creatures, some which are unique to that area, mm -hmm. but a wide variety of paranormal events. And we certainly see that with in Sedona, Arizona, which people have described as having a vortex of electromagnetic energy. Um, I think this, these are areas on the planet which probably have magnetic field lines coming down to them or magnetic anomalies in some way that perhaps do allow UFOs to appear in large numbers or perhaps give a little boost to the, a ghost's ability to manifest or I don't know, I can't, this is very hard to you know, wrap your head around. 
um, are the veils between the worlds thinner there? Mm -hmm. um, something is going on because certain areas absolutely across the planet are more prone to UFO and paranormal activity. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'm not exactly sure why. I find that interesting with the, the kind of is, with that obviously, like so-called window areas, you maybe have a vortex or whatever it is, and um, like places like Sedona or Skinwalker Ranch, for example, Skinwalker Ranch being one of the well-known ones, right? But when you look at Skinwalker Ranch for what they did in the past, and even what they're doing now in the TV show, and you get the whole Kerry scenario where poking the hornet's nest, where they dig on the ranch, it maybe create um, a bit of activity, for example, maybe see like a like a UAP site and UFO site and maybe a, a cryptid or, or whatever else. But it's interesting. We've got these areas everywhere, well, I think, anyway. And it's you never know when they, they might be digging up a motorway somewhere or a road somewhere, and that creates a flap in that area because it's maybe gone through some of these areas. And um, that's it's always always going kind to of think of that with the especially when we stay here because we had that um, flap in between like the late eighties and nineties, um, which like Malcolm Robinson and Ron Halliday wrote extensively about. Um, where we had like hundreds of signs of UFOs, like it's for me and Mark, it's like a stone throw, it's no, it's not too far from here. Um, and we, even in this area, we've had getting multiple um reports over the, the years and stuff. And this, the, the, the kind of some of the kind of common factors is like some of these type of areas, and I mean, where you've got like in burial mounds and you've got ley lines and, and, and things like that. I mean, but it's always a kind of food for thought where you think, well, can you what's caused has there something? existentially it's caused that flap that ufo flap has it been something like that where maybe you know, as i said a new motorway getting dug up through an area it's, it's caused something or whatever else you'd imagine if it happened in, in skinwalker ranch um so moving on to, to that and i'll kind of I'll, I'll i'll wrap up after kind of the last subject um and they'll keep you too long and we're kind of running on a wee bit here um but one of your books um out of body exploring um, could you talk a wee bit about that and have you had any I take it you've had experiences yourself in that if you're writing about it and stuff so I'd be quite that's, that's, that's a kind of it interests me a lot that area for the fact that it links into obviously you're talking about interdimensional um, for us beings is after death when we sleep when we actually travel and it, it links into a lot of other type of phenomena as well I mean so I'd just like to get your thoughts on it I mean so yeah yeah I absolutely love talking about OBEs, out-of-body experiences, astral projection, goes by different names. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my mom passed away when I was quite young, 19, and uh, I saw her spirit and uh, thought I was hallucinating. You know, I did not believe in ghosts, but I started having dreams about her where she would come to my room after she'd passed away and she'd say, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm like, I am going crazy because I'm pretty sure this is her. You can mm -hmm. kind of just tell by the quality of her presence. <laughs> but I was not convinced there was life after death. So I couldn't reconcile this. Mm. I started buying books on dreams and lucid dreaming, which led to discovering the books by Robert Monroe, mm. um, who is an accomplished astral traveler. Mm. And uh, he's like, he describes his experiences in the book with astral projection and said that anybody can do this. It's a natural human talent. And here's how you do it. Mm -hmm. but, huh? <laughs> You know, I'm always the kind of researcher who wants to see it himself, you know, because I've seen ghosts. I did have a Bigfoot encounter. I've had UFO encounters. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I heard about astral projection, I'm like, this is something I can do. I'm going to try it. Yeah. And I 
buckled down hard. I mean, I really worked hard doing meditation for about a month and a half. It took, you know, pretty much every night meditating before I had my first experience. Mm -hmm. I just laid down one day and popped right out and flew across the room <laughs> into the bathroom. I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. I was out of my body. You know it when it happens to you. You, There's no doubt in your mind. I got pulled right back in, did it the next weekend, identical experience. The third time I did it, I just woke up. I was already out of body and thought I had died because I was, could see my body on the bed. Mm -hmm. Very scary. It was really, you know, very frightening. Mm -hmm. I dived back in. And then I became all excited because I had done it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I ended up writing a book about it. This is the only autobiographical book I've written. All the others is other people's experiences for the most part. Uh, and uh, really, you know, after I found out anyone can do this and I could do it. Yeah. I started meditating much more. And over the a period of a couple of years, I got really good at it. Initially, I could only pop out for a few seconds at a time. I get so excited. I'd be like, I did it. Yay. I get pulled right back in. Mm -hmm. Because if you have strong emotions, it will pull you back in. Yeah. Uh, but I finally learned how to stay out more than a few seconds. But then I had to learn how to move because I'd be in the middle of my room flapping my arms. And I couldn't even see. And I had to learn everything step by step. Mm -hmm. But after a couple of years, I got good at it. I could walk through the walls. I was able to explore the house. Mm -hmm. Eventually had the courage to go outside and fly around to the neighbor's house, to you know, mm -hmm. families, and just got farther and farther. I wanted to, my whole motivation was to see if there was life after death. And I wanted mm -hmm. to see where my mom was who had passed away. And eventually she did appear. She took me to the other side. I got a big tour of what I would call the heavenly realms. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not really a religious guy, mm -hmm. but it's beautiful on the other side. Absolutely beautiful. And with lots of perseverance and discipline, I was able to have all kinds of experiences where I was taken to see past lives, uh, meet, I guess you'd call them enlightened masters, mm -hmm. go to healing temples, learning centers. Uh, one of my best experiences was going to, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the Akashic plane, yeah. the Akashic library. Mm -hmm. People describe this in their out-of-body books. And I thought, well, if they can do it, why not me? And I eventually did. It took a lot of effort. But yeah. I was able to visit this beautiful building and go inside and I learned all about my past lives. It's very cool. I mean, I cannot recommend this enough. It is so much fun. Very freeing. You get to fly around. Um, Occasionally, there are scary experiences here and there. Mm -hmm. It's a little disconcerting the first few times, for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's actually easy to do. There's Some people do have a steep learning curve. Yeah. Uh, but it's 100% something we all do every night. Mm -hmm. uh, the trick is really just remembering it. And when yeah. you're out of body, the things you can do is so amazing. Do you, do you find your technique, um, is it always at, at night do you do it or do you ever do it like during the day as well when you're like in a, a more kind of awake state? I know obviously you're awake when you do it because you need to try and keep your body awake. But um, do you find it easier when you're resting at night rather than it would be maybe during the day? Yes. Uh, when you're like totally alert and awake, yeah. 
yeah, most of my experience, especially in the beginning, would be on weekends. Because, you know, as a young man, when I was doing this, uh, and I still still have experiences. Yeah. It's much easier now. I can't really do it that well. But yeah, it would always, almost always be on weekends when I could sleep late. Mm-hmm. I learned that's a real benefit if you can add an extra hour to sleep and just lie there in bed. Mm-hmm. I've done it during the day many times. And you don't, it doesn't matter what position your body is in. You can sleep on your stomach or your side. You can do it sitting up in an easy chair. The trick is physical relaxation. You have to really relax to the point where your body falls asleep. Uh, and you'll feel a vibra- vibratory sort of state, a vibration, almost like an electric shock, yeah. especially initially. And then you whoosh, you go out. And there's all these techniques on how to do it you know, yeah. with visualizations and affirmations. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of literature on this. My own book, I really concentrated on taking people through step by step because a lot of books are like, oh, it's just easy. It's easy. All you do is relax and boom, you're out. <laughs> that was not the way it went for me. It took some real effort. Mm-hmm. The more effort you put, the more focused you are intending to do it. The more successful you'll be. Did you ever try hemisync? Um, did you tried that? Did that did. did that work for you more, or was it more like your own technique, or when you did it? Yeah, I tried it. I didn't like it. It mm. felt like it was forcing it. Yeah, because um, I would hear the d- dissonant tones. Mm-hmm. I would create the sort of vibrational feeling that you do feel. Yeah, I think it probably does work for people, but. Mm-hmm. Personally, I didn't do it. I tried it once and, and it made me feel uncomfortable. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I felt like it was forcing it and I wanted to develop this naturally through my own, you know, yeah. willpower. Uh, and that, that I would recommend that for people, actually. Because mm-hmm. um, you don't want to have to have props to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. You don't need props. I can, I can remember when I was 18, the first the first book I bought in Astro Traveling was when I was 18. Um, going back in the day and um, did they focus enough on it and, and did they try it enough and stuff and then it kind of progressed from there but I mean um, I've, in the last wee while I've went through the whole um, other Robert Monroe books a few times really really great books and uh, I've just they came across obviously your own one so I'll get that as well to have a read of it but I did find it interesting too Robert Monroe has a as you know a section in his first book where he describes how to do it as well which is quite it's a it's quite simplified the way he's, he's, he's got it in there and it's quite understandable. But then obviously they've got the hemi-sync and stuff like that as well. You know what I mean, so I'd recently purchased the, the gateway process, um, which I've, I've I've just started listening to. I actually had, there's a few other ones as well out there. There's um, Sacred Acoustics, which was, it's, it's another type of um, binaural beats and stuff like that as well. It works in the same kind of principle with um, that as well. But I find the, the subject absolutely fascinating. You know what I mean, so... Yeah, maybe oh, maybe we'll see you sometime once it actually once yeah. actually be able to do it and be successful. <laughs> I taught workshops on how to do this. Yeah, and I taught family members, friends how to do it. Because mm-hmm. um, after you, it happens to you. You're like, oh my god, everyone <laughs> has to know this. You have to try this because uh, it the benefits are unbelievable. I mean, you can. I've got 20, 30 cases of people who are physically healed. It removes the fear of death. You get to visit deceased loved ones, including pets. Mm-hmm. Everyone I've ever had who passed away, I get to see them at some point, often, you know, right away. 
I cannot recommend it enough. And it's far, you know, people think, oh, I can't do it. Or it sounds scary. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the main obstacles, fear and skepticism, I think, and laziness for that matter. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, for me, it was down to laziness. <laughs> but <laughs> Spend an hour each day. Yeah. Um, but, just focusing on it. That's the trick. Honest to God, it's just really intending to do it. The interesting thing was when when I was 18, and I, I, I've told this story before in regards to I used to get sleep paralysis. And um, I thought it was the, it, it, I was kind of set on the area where I stayed. It was like an interesting area where I stayed. And I had sleep paralysis in two, two houses, but I had it for two over the space of two years quite intensely like every week every two weeks and it was there all the time but it actually in that property i stayed where it started that's where i started to try to astral travel that's where i started it and it was after that it was after that i had sleep paralysis like constantly for like um it would uh, and I, I don't know I, I chalked up to a lot of some experiences there wasn't a lot of um visual experiences during the sleep paralysis until the very very end um, after like the, the year and a half to two years, but it was interesting. It was just I was I was trying. One of the things that came to me recently, it was a, it was a funny thing. So I used to think, was it because of that property where I had sleep paralysis? Or was it something to do with that area? And I used to maybe chalk it up to that. And it was quite an interesting. So it would happen quite a lot. And something came to me. It was a funny thing, a funny comment my, my friend had made. And I was sharing the house with my friend, and he'd made a comment like um, about astral traveling. So I'd, I'd bought the book and I was trying to do it. And I was reading it, and I was 18 at the time, of like 18 or 19. And I can mind, mind them saying funny, he says, Well, if you're going to travel, if you want to astral travel, just stay at my room. <laughs> and that thought came to me, and I was like, That's where it started. That's where I started reading it. And that's when I started getting sleep paralysis. So I don't know if it's connected or not. It might have been me, I've not. Listen, um, it is. do you want to add in now? In now? Sorry, sorry, what did you say? The... Yeah, it's, it's definitely connected to sleep paralysis. That's a sign that you're doing it. Um, yeah, but just not remembering it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mark, do you it, want to add in until we finish up? Yeah, last thing, uh, I wasn't, I've never really been interested in OBEs, but what I have been interested in for a long time, like uh, Chris has been in OBEs, is lucid dreaming. And uh, when I was 18, I got... I was really interested in uh, Stephen LeBerk, who was doing a lot of research into lucid dreaming. And I was just wondering about your thoughts. What's your adventures through lucid dreaming? Have they been intense or are they, will you still do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stephen LeBerg is who, who really helped me a lot. He and Robert Monroe, I really owe a lot. Um, I have a huge gratitude towards them. Uh, lucid dreaming is essentially the same thing. As an out-of-body experience i do think you're out of body when you're lucid dreaming the only real difference is you are hallucinating you are creating your environment around you and what's amazing is when you're out of body in the lucid dream state you can have any adventure you want i would you know it's also called the emotional body the desire body the astral body is and you'll know that when you go out of body because you will feel emotions very strongly for some it's fear or excitement for me but also you know gluttony i would become extremely hungry and create feasts of food i would just build a table of brownies and chicken nuggets and potato chips and <laughs> you name it and just gorge on it orange juice and uh and it would disappear kind of halfway down your throat it's very strange you can't get that either <laughs> I become consumed with lust. 
And without getting into graphic detail, <laughs> you can create anything <laughs> you want and have all kinds of adventures yeah. uh, with that. Uh, there, there's nothing you can't do. Uh, it's really, really amazing. So there is absolutely a connection. I think lucid dreaming and OBEs are essentially the same thing, but you'll find out they're different when you're having a lucid dream and you pull out of it into an out-of-body experience and you realize, oh, you're hovering above your body in your room. And then you can start visiting other places or go to the other side and do all kinds of things. Well, it's definitely an interesting subject, and it's a, I will be kind of delving into it a bit more. Um, listen, you've been an excellent guest, and I really appreciate you coming on and spending the time. We've been running on about an hour and 45 minutes there, so I do appreciate you um, coming on and spending the time with us. Is there any way you'd like to tell the viewers where to find the, your books and where to find the, your, your your podcast and your YouTube channel and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Chris. Absolutely, I appreciate that. Uh, I do have a website. I think if you just punch my name in, on the internet, it should take you there. The actual address is prestondennett.weebly.com. I do have a YouTube channel as well where I'm putting out my research. I've got one out there about astral travel, by the way, on how to do it and everything, my own experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think if you really want to do it, I would definitely recommend checking that out. But I'm all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. My books are available on Amazon and other online retailers. And yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate you guys having me on. Well, had a great time. Yeah, it's been great. Listen, thanks very much for your time, and we'll hopefully catch up with you again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.